Hey everyone, it's Mike. Just checking in here before we begin this week's episode. It's Lion King week. We've been excited about this for a while, and so we're going to bring you some special stuff this week on the show. First, today's episode, our special guest, if you haven't seen already, is Jim Hill. If you don't know who Jim Hill is, he is a Disney expert, a Disney podcaster. I'm sure you've heard him if you've listened to any other Disney podcast. So he's joining us today to talk about the history of Lion King, and I'm pretty excited about that. Later this week, you'll get a special episode of Hostile Discourse. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've heard that David has another show, a podcast with his friends called Hostile Discourse, and we recently recorded an episode about the new Lion King movie on that show, so I'll also be releasing that Hostile Discourse episode on this feed this week. And I have some very special interviews lined up from some people who worked on Lion King. I'm going to keep it a surprise, but you will not want to miss it, so stay tuned this week. We'll have a few Lion King episodes for you, and I hope that you enjoy them. With that, here's Jim Hill and Lion King from 1994. You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hey, and welcome once again to Disney One by One. This week, we're talking about The Lion King from 1994. Finally, we're at The Lion King. Remember, as always, you can check us out everywhere on the internet at Disney 1X1 if you give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We would love that, and we'll read it here on the show. With me this week, as always, is my brother, David Rolfing, the, the Timon to my Pumbaa. <laughs> Welcome to the show. One, one of the better ones you'd come up with there. Um, this was the number one in my top five that we went over on the, the very first episode. Was it your number one as well, Mike? I think it was, too. And a lot of our guests have ranked this as number one, so we're excited to, to finally get to it. Yeah, it was, it was good to watch it. Also, I hadn't seen it in way too long, so it was fun to rewatch again. And, and joining us this week... Um, our, our new special guest and possibly the most special guest we've ever had, the one Mr. Jim Hill of many uh, Disney podcasts, Disney articles, Disney news stories. Jim, welcome to Disney One by One. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. And again, if you're really excited to have me on as a guest, you really need to get out. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, Yeah, well, well Jim is a, a theme park expert, Disney movie expert. Is that is that you in a nutshell? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 again, I'm an old guy. I've been doing this since, dear Lord, 1984. I think this is my 35th year writing about the Walt Disney Company. And, uh, really, again, I'm an old print newspaper guy who backed into the internet and, uh, like 97, 98. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they haven't thrown me out yet. So <laughs> here I am. Well, bef before you were writing about Disney and doing all these Disney podcasts and things, what what was your early career like? You know, I, I was a you know, magazine newspaper writer. I, I actually started out as a, a 71Q. That's that's that an official army journalist. I went to the Defense Information College in Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indiana. And, you know, they, they, the army taught me how to to tell a story badly and the weird <laughs> thing is uh that's actually how i got into writing professionally about the disney company i mean long story short 1985 was when donald duck was celebrating his 50th anniversary and there was a crazed uh base commander at 12 palms out in california who wanted his face in the newspaper at all costs and it was, uh, long story short he arranged for Disney, uh, the Disney theme parks to send him every character costume that they had for Donald Duck, and they staged a military retirement ceremony for Donald. <laughs> Your tax dollar at work, folks. You know, the twelve hundred troops in review and marching band and all that. And is it on video at least? Actually, yes. If you go, uh, if you go on YouTube and search for Donald Duck's. 50th anniversary television special. It's hosted by Dick Van Dyke. I want to say two thirds of the way through, you actually can see footage of this ridiculous parade where it's it's <laughs> Donald in a World War II uniform. I think he's traveling in a big old 1930s open car with Daisy. And I think you even get to see the base commander, you know, the guy who started all this, present him with his retirement certificate. I mean, it, this this really happened. I mean, again, I know for this generation, if there's not films that didn't exist, there's film. Um, that reminds me of some of like those early Disney propaganda films, maybe. Uh, well, 
you're not all wrong but again that 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 was the interesting thing is you're gonna remember this is you know i mean michael eisner had only just come through the door uh in 84 so you know yeah 85 is like sure yeah we'll celebrate donald and it wasn't till 10 years later they really got things going and we got things like the lion king so, I mean, you, you wrote for the military. How did you end up being like the Disney expert? Um, well, I, I guess we have my ex-wife to, to thank for that. Uh, Al Lutz had just started what was then known as the Disney Information Guide Online. And, uh, you know, just a, a loose group of uh, online writers who, you know, were interested in the Disney company sort of came together and they launched what at that point was about to become Mouse Planet. And so my ex, uh, now Michelle Valladolid, she was among the writers and they knew they needed stuff, you know. And so she reached out to me and it's like, can you write one story for this site? We need content. And so Michael Eisner's memoir book, uh, Work in Progress, had just come out. And if I could, I can knock out a quick book review. But that's a long book. I've read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, again, got a lot of great stories for uh, you know. Again, about, about things like uh, working on the Lion King. But anyway, I'm, as an old newspaper print guy, you know, I mean, I, I was used to. You write something and it, it takes a day at the the least, sometimes months before you see your work in print. And yeah. The interesting thing of writing for the internet is you hand something off and seconds later it's up and seconds later people are commenting and it's like, <laughs> well, this is interesting. And, you know, from one story, I think the last time I checked, we're getting ready to, to do something with the old Jim Hill Media Archive, written 2,500 stories for the web and at least three of them are still readable. <laughs> I would just want to talk about theme parks real quick. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of that with Lion King. How did how did where did your affinity for the Disney theme parks grow from? Um, I, well, again, I'm an old fart, so I grew up actually. I mean, literally, as as a five and six year old, sat down in front of the television on Sunday nights and then watched the wonderful world of color. Uh, and yeah, I'd watch the things with epis, you know, with nature, you know, and and enjoy the ones with animation. But the ones that really caught my eye were when Walt would talk about the theme park attractions. It would take you behind the scenes, for example, show you how the Magic Skyway ride for uh, the Ford Pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair, how yeah. you know they were building full-size dinosaurs. And it, what's so funny is that when I got to interview Imagineers like David Mumford, they talked about the exact same episode. Mm. Like, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what got it started. Walt himself. I love those videos too. And especially the one where Walt's uh, explaining his, his vision for Epcot and yeah. any, anything with him in that sort of staged office space with artwork and models. It's just, yeah. it's so see, I still watch but that stuff. See, no, that's that you've hit a nerve here with me. Cause again, same thing. I, I, I saw that in real time. I saw, you know, yeah. and that's the thing I, you know, I, I know, in fact, Len, who I do the Disney Dish uh, podcast with, loves Epcot. It's his favorite park. And my problem is that, okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good park, but it's not the city. It's not what, you know, it's not why Walt bought all that land in Florida. You know, yeah, in fact, the, the, the Magic Kingdom was supposed to be the carrot to get people to come down the Florida, but the the big thing was the city, and you know, yeah, we got celebration, celebration, kind of, yeah. But you know, I mean, that's you know, it's sort of the the equivalent of, hey, would you like prime rib? It's like, yeah, sure. Well, here, enjoy this piece of bologna. Yeah, right. You know, it's just it's <laughs> not the same thing. No, you know? unfortunately. So. Jim, as the Disney parks have come up a couple times on this podcast, I've asked a couple of guests this fun question. I think. Mm -hmm. If you were to be stuck on one Disney attraction at the parks for one month straight, nonstop, which attraction would you choose to not go <laughs> absolutely insane? Um. Well, I I guess the the smartest choice would be Spaceship Earth because you could you know you get up to the monastery and they got the library, you know, and you, <laughs> you know, I mean, you walk up to the radio section and, you know, you can listen to, or, you know, where they're watching television. I mean, you could be entertained, you know, on the other hand, if you put me in small world, I'd break after five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's one of those moments where Spaceship Earth is relentlessly educating, educational, sometimes 
to the detriment of being entertaining. But if I were trapped inside of it, at least for a month, it'd be something to do. So, <laughs> Unless you're stuck in the ride vehicle. I'm not sure what the rules uh, of this game are. Okay, now, right, then, now <laughs> when I was living in Florida once, I had a, a, a friend, Arlen Miller, who worked for the company. And one night, as part of a special uh, after-hours event, I did get to walk the ride track with Arlen for Spaceship Urban. Well, you know, boy, you get up close to a lot of this stuff. It's fascinating. All right. Well, before we get into Lion King, we, we ask every guest on our show to rattle off and briefly explain their top five favorite uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios films. So, so Jim, uh, I'll give you the honor to start with number five if you've got it. Um, I, Actually, it, or if you have some honorable mentions, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, no, no. no. It, it, I, I, I don't know if I, I want to put these in uh, one through five, but... If I had to pick five, they'd be the first five films that Ron and John mm. made for Disney. I mean, uh, starting with Great Mouse Detective. I mean, and they, prior to that, we had like Black Fox Cauldron. and the Hound and Black <laughs> Cauldron. And, you know, they were all very earnest and they meant well, but they weren't all that entertaining. And here suddenly was an animated film as entertaining as a Spielberg film. And then, you know, Little Mermaid, you know, the first time in years that the Disney had a, a movie where the songs were memorable and, the, you know, it, that you got emotionally involved with the characters. And and then they followed that with Aladdin, which is not just got great songs, but huge heart and big, big laughs and amazing look. Well, and Robin Williams. Yeah. And then Hercules. I know Her the, Hercules doesn't have as many fans. Would you get James Woods yeah. as the voice of Hades <laughs> or, or, you know, Pain or Panic? I get it. And that film is still funny, still holds up today. And then, look, it's flawed. But Treasure Planet has a lot of good stuff. You know, and in fact, I, I have to wonder... If, you know, Ron and John had gotten their wish and had got persuaded Sean Connery to be the voice of Long John Silver, whether or not that movie would have done better. But those five movies with Ron and John at the very top of their game, that's a stunning run. And I want to say John uh, just retired. And, I, you know, let's be honest, Princess and the Frog, you know, kind of suffers from yeah. from too many cooks and Moana which I love, I love but, Moana, yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, the, the, the weird thing is even Ron and John would admit, will admit flat out that they kind of got in over their head with CG and that's why they had to bring in that second set of directors hmm. for sheer entertainment. The first five Ron and John films can't be beat as, as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad you mentioned Treasure Planet, and I'm not just blinded my, by nostalgia on that one because that's one of my favorites as well. <laughs> no, it's it's a great, great film, and but again, it was also a great, great film that came out on the exact same weekend as I want to say Harry Potter and was that the Prisoner of Azkaban or you know I mean it was, it was kind of what just happened with movies coming out against Endgame you know, yeah, it's, right. it's like you might as well have thrown the movie straight <laughs> into luck. a wood chipper you know it's sort of like oh yes yes we're all running to the theaters to see Ugly Doll and Longshot it's like no we're still in line for Endgame I still enjoy that film and I, I just I keep hoping it's one of those things like Iron Giant that after the fact people discover it and learn to love it so yeah well it's coming up on our on our list on our show and I don't recall seeing it so I'm excited to I'm excited oh to take no no, no you, you, you got it good stuff good stuff and uh, with that we will move on to the Lion King and now our feature presentation Over the years, Walt Disney Studios has taken us on unforgettable journeys from under the sea in The Little Mermaid to an enchanted castle in Beauty and the Beast and into a whole new world with Aladdin. Now, for the summer of 1994, Disney animators will take you deep into the wilds of Africa for Disney's 32nd all-new full-length animated feature, The Lion King. So the... Original concept for Lion King was developed by a number of folks at the studio around, 19, around 1988. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who we've talked about in previous episodes, Roy E. Disney, who was the nephew of Walt, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, Pete Schneider were out promoting Oliver and Company, and they decided to just start brainstorming ideas and came up with, hey, we should maybe make something in Africa and sort of spawned from there. Yeah, they were, I mean, the interesting thing is they were sort of looking back over the Disney filmography and it was like, Disney had done 
uh, animal-based films, and they'd obviously done, you know, Bambi back in 42. So it was sort of like, and you got to remember that, that this is also while they're out promoting Oliver and Company, which lets be polite here is, you know, doesn't he just feature dogs, is kind of a dog. But again, this was this was the film that Jeffrey Katzenberg learned animation on and learned to love the process. And they've got Mermaid, you know, in development at this point. And, and so, yeah, they're looking, a, you know, a project or two ahead and just sort of spitballing ideas. But again, it's, you know, what what was the first title of this thing? Yeah, what, I think what, the they, first title was... Uh, King, king of, of the, the jungle. Be- king of the king of the Kalahari was the first. There we one. go. There we go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and then Linda Wolverton stepped in to work on it, and she's she's written a few of these movies of late. Oh yeah, yeah. Then, you know, she she was the one who would come in and and you know uh, sort of righted the ship when they they Beauty and the Beast went from being you know a non musical to a, a full blown musical. But so you know, it, uh, so it's kind of ironic that she comes off of Beauty and the Beast, and what does she do? When she, uh, you know, comes on board the film, she changes the title of the film to King of the King Beast. King of the Beast, yeah. <laughs> Close enough. They can't quite get the balance of elements right. I mean, they're, they're kind of wandering in lots of directions here. I mean, at this point, is George Scribner the director? Um, I don't know if we've gotten to him yet. <laughs> There's so okay. many people. So, yeah, so Linda steps in to work on it, King of the Beast, and then it... Yep. And then it gets retitled to King of the Jungle. Right. And the original plot was like lions and baboons fighting each other. And Scar was the leader of the baboons. (laughs) Other weird stuff. Well, again, it was going to be a much more nature-based film early on. And in fact, more to the point, it was also not going to be a musical. Yeah. I, I, I heard it described during this period as a very tooth and claw movie, <laughs> you know, a lot of fighting and biting and, you know, and that sort of thing. And and it was also just about this time that somebody pointed out, you know, lions don't actually live in the jungle. And they live out in the <laughs> savannah. So. Right. so yeah, at some point they decided to uh, turn into a savannah, which makes a little more sense. Yeah. And, and you know, and eventually you know we just default to the kings it's got lion king fine you good you happy all right moving on so yeah and that was after a number of people at least put their hands on it uh thomas schumacher was involved and he's the guy who ended up he runs like disney theatrical stuff now he he? does he does in fact you know the interesting part of the story you know he's he's there as these these two huge sizable hits you know happen in feature animation beauty and the beast and lion king and what does he do you know when he gets over to disney theatrical you know basically all of the films that were there you know during the period where he was in the building uh Mermaid, he brought to Broadway. Uh, yeah. You know, Aladdin, you know, just, in fact, it's touring the country now. But yeah, Beast and, and, and Lion King were huge, huge, long running hits. In fact, Beast ran for 17 years and Lion King is it's probably like still 20, running, Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, in 1997. Yeah. So it's just interesting that he, he worked on it at some point, but kind of bailed, but then ended up kind of making a living off of it in a different well, form. Well, there you go. There you go. You know. And then, uh, as you said, George Scribner touched it for, uh, after Oliver and Company, but he didn't like that it was uh, that they wanted to turn it into a musical, so he bailed. Well, look, though, I mean, realistically, okay, you know, you're the Walt Disney Company, and you are looking over your shoulder, and you had, you know, Mermaid that made what 189 million, and you had Beauty and the Beast that made 140 million, and then you had Aladdin that made 225 million, and they were all <laughs> musicals. All right. Yeah. Tell me that you're, you're looking at that, you're going to be the one, you know, let's not do this music thing anymore. It clearly isn't paying <laughs> off. You know, let, let's, let's, let's make this, you know, they, they don't even talk in this one. How yeah. about that? I'll say Re- Rescuer Down Under was pretty good as a non-musical, but that did come before all the ones you just listed. So It was, it was. And again, another film that really does hold up. But yeah, by then, you know, especially, you know, Jeffrey and, and, and Michael were looking at the amount of money the new Disney musicals were making and, you know, how well the, the VHS, you know, of these movies sold and, yeah. you know, having hit records with Peebo Bryson and, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, oh, well, come on, guys. <laughs> so we're going to make this into a musical. And this literally was the movie they made up as they went along. Everyone who worked on it appreciates that you know, it's as beloved as it is, and it's considered a, a masterpiece. But the people who were working on it 
as it was going along were absolutely terrified. You know, it's just one of these things where, is there really a movie here? Because I'm not sure there is. You know, he runs <laughs> out to the desert and goes and does what for 15 years, you know? Yeah, I mean, no one knows. Except for, I guess, is that what Lion King one and a half is about? I'm not sure. Yeah, it yeah, is. yeah. Well, I mean, you guys know the story about what? It's 1991. Beauty and the Beast is is winding down. It's been premiered at the New York Film Festival and a work in progress, and people are losing their minds. Which is, which is just crazy to think about now, yeah. Yeah, it's a giant hit for the company. But, you know, people are transitioning off of it and looking for the next project. So they have a breakfast at the studio. And everybody's invited to, to come have a nosh, and there are two rooms set up. And they, in each of the rooms, they have concept art for the next two films for the, <laughs> the company. And one room is Pocahontas. And, and, and this is the thing. Glenn Keane has been working on Pocahontas on and off for the better part of a year. So yeah, and he, I think he wrote on that movie too, didn't he? He did. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, and there were these beautiful sketches, these amazing, you know, pieces of art. And, and it's one of these things that just, it looks amazing. You know, it's just like, oh my God. And Katzenberg is like, this is going to be our important movie. This is going to be, you know, it's going to be about the environment and it's going to be, have a strong woman and it's, you know, it, it's going to be, and, you know. And Alan Menken. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and, all right, so you get your Pocahontas room and then you got, King the of the Day, King of the Beast, yeah. King of the Jungle. We're not sure in that title yet. <laughs> you got George's art up, you know, and it really at that point when you look at the art, it's like, wow, you're trying to make a National Geographic special. Yeah. And, and so a lot of the older animators who were looking at this and it's like, oh, I got to draw animals. I got to draw. I got to be really good at anatomy. I got to be, you know, Pocahontas looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, what ended up happening is Lion King ended up being the breakout film for a lot of younger animators because the older guys looked at it and it's like, that looks like hard work and that doesn't look important. And at this point, it's not a musical. And it's like, screw it. I'll be over here in the Pocahontas room eating my, my Danish, you know. <laughs> but again, so you, you end up with this far younger crew, far less experienced crew. Don climbs aboard this thing as a producer and looks and everyone around him is five you know <laughs> it's like and we don't have a story and it's like and they want to turn it into a musical now and here's tim rice tim had come in to do a couple of songs for aladdin after howard ashman had died right uh, get a whole new world and and that sort of thing and fix up some lyrics uh and so disney wanted to keep him in-house and they offered him lion king and he said, I don't want to work with Alan again. He's, he's in fact, at that point, he'd been paired with Stephen Schwartz to work on Pocahontas. Pocahontas, yeah. So it's like, hey, let's find somebody else. And <laughs> Why know, not like, Elton John? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but did you hear his first choice? ABBA? Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, if you're, when Elton John is your number two, I mean, that that says a lot. I'm surprised no one's, like, tried to, maybe they have, like, recreated some of these songs in the style of ABBA to see what it was like. I, no, yeah, again, somebody, somebody's got to do that. I, I have to hear these songs. But anyway, they, they reach out to Elton John. Now, remember, this is... You know, we're having our production meeting in, in 91, and we're starting to ramp up in 92. And so Tim Rice reached out to Elton John. And so Elton John goes, yeah, I, okay, I, I'm interested. But here's the thing. I'm on tour. All right. Uh, my tour starts May 1992. He's doing 154 concerts. Oh, gosh. And he won't be done till June of 1993. All right, so he's like, literally, what do you think this movie needs? And they get together for a weekend, and Elton pounds out the music for this thing. Five songs in a weekend. And then hands it to Tim, and it's like, okay, do whatever you want with yeah, this. Write, write your words. Write your words, and I'll check back in later. And he's literally, he's gone for over a year at that point. Tell me when I need to be there for the premiere, and I'll, I'll bring a really sparkly outfit. Yeah, and some cool glasses, yeah. And can you feel the love tonight? It is where we are. I'd love to talk a little bit about the cast of this movie. I mean, still today is an incredible cast. Often these movies, you forget who some of these people are, but I feel like this is one of the earlier ones with some really recognizable names. Yeah, but at the same time, what's kind of interesting about them, like if you want to be 
completely honest here, some of the casting of this movie is incredibly lazy. All right, think about it. You've got James Earl Jones as Mufasa and Madge Sinclair as Sarabi. Uh, you know, wonderful voices. But the reason they went with those choices is they had played Eddie Murphy's parents in Coming oh, to America. yeah. <laughs> so it's just one of these things. Who sounds like an African king and queen? Well, with these two, they just, and they just oh, did the I John Reynolds movie. Yeah. And so it's like, all right, good, we're done. And, and of course, you know about, you know, the original, what they were originally going to do with the hyenas, where it yeah. was... It was supposed Cheech, to be Cheech and Chong. Cheech and Chong. Obviously, they you know they got uh, Cheech Marin, but they didn't get Tommy Chong. Interesting thing on Brother Bear, ten years later, they did the same thing. You know, they Rick were, they were well, yeah, they're, they're Rick Moranis and, and Dave Thomas. You know, uh, Doug and Bob McKenzie, and and then you know, sort of a a carryover from when uh, Howard Ashman wrote heard on the casting of The Little Mermaid uh, and, and Beauty and the Beast. He insisted on going to New York and getting theater types to, to do voices. Right. For example, that's how we got Jerry Orbark, uh, you know, who did such a wonderful job with Lumiere and, uh, you know, Angela Lansbury, you know, yeah, we all know her from Murder, She Wrote and, you know, all that. And But Howard grew up watching, you know, going to musicals in the 60s and 70s. So he, he knew Angela Lansbury from Mame and Sweeney Todd. So they're in New York. They're doing auditions and they're, they're basically anybody who's in a show in New York, you know, and has an agent can get in. And so here's Nathan Lane. And so Nathan goes in to audition for a hyena. And as he goes into the waiting room, you know, and this is when Nathan's on Broadway and, guy, you know, the guys wonderful dolls, world of yeah. Guys and Dolls. And here's his co-star from, from Guys and Dolls, er, Ernie Sarbella. And it's like, you're here? It's like, oh, just don't let anybody in. And, <laughs> and so as Ernie told the story, Nathan's like, you know, look, I'm hungry. All right. I want to go to lunch. How about this? Let's the two of us go in. We'll run the lines together. We'll get out of here that much faster and have lunch. And that's what they did. They, they, they literally went into the studio and they were being so goofy because, you know, these are two friends who have been in this Broadway show. They're very loose together. They know each other's rhythms and they're barely reading the script. They're, they're constantly ad-libbing. But, you know, and, and on the other side of the booth, the directors are just sort of leaning in like, who are these guys? Yes, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, they go back to L.A. and it's like, look, they're totally wrong for the hyenas. But, oh, my God, listen to these guys. And they had this whole set of characters, uh, like a batter fox and, and that sort of thing, were supposed to be young Simba's buddies in the beginning of the movie. But they'd cut those characters. But it's like, we got done Mirko. We could, we could say young war dog, you know. Let's bring him back. And so, and so, and, and that's the thing. Ernie talks about, you know, they called and said, Disney wants you. They think you're perfect. Oh, wow. That's great. What character are you playing? A warthog. And it's, like, <laughs> it's like, excuse me? And, and he's a flatulent warthog, too. And I was like, wow, you, you, you guys really know how to make a guy feel good. You know, they, there's an old adage in show business. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. And think about it, as they're working on The Lion King and various pieces are starting to fall into place, it's like people are like, you know, this is Hamlet, right? All right, <laughs> you get what's going on here? The uncle, the kid, it's doubting. You know, yeah, right. This is Hamlet. And, and somebody points out, well, look, you know, if you look at the great Shakespeare plays, they always have the clowns. They always have, you know, in, in these tragedies, they, 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 they'll have characters that come in that will lighten it for the moment. For example, in, in Hamlet, you have the scene with the gravedigger, alas, poor Yorick. I knew him well. Yep. And so they're the notion, like, well, let's, let's bring in, like, some low clowns like Shakespeare did. And so that's, you know, and, and, and again, they were brought in at that exact moment in the movie because it's like, this is a hugely bleak sequence. And more to the point, we have to fill all this time until this character ages up and can go back and confront Scar. But again, this, this is the thing. They made it up as they went along. You know, if anybody tells you this was the plan all along with The Lion King, they're lying. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you know, they're working on the movie. And initially, when everybody listened to the Elton John songs, they're like, it sounds like he wrote these in a weekend. <laughs> but here's the thing. Don is smart enough to reach out to... Uh, Lebo. Yeah, Lebo. Lebo M. Okay. Yeah, Lebo M. Yep. And he hands him the music and he goes off 
and he works on these amazing arrangements and he brings Don in and plays them and it's just and it's one of the things it's night and day the, the, the music is now magical it's majestic it, it actually has the feel and the sound of Africa and, and yeah you know, I mean, he, he brought in an African choir to en- enhance the music but yeah. that's the thing he took these songs that Elton threw together quickly and gave them art and gave them grace. You know, I mean, it's the arrangement that makes those songs. But again, you know, this is a movie that's originally announced to be released to theaters to November of 93, and they're running behind schedule, so they have to push off the release date to uh, June of, of 94, I want to say. Yep. But they still need a trailer in theaters. And it's like, you know, we, the movie's not in shape. We don't, have, we don't have enough to cut together for the trailer. And so what do you got? Well, we got the opening five minutes of the movie. It's like, fine, that's your trailer. Yeah, and, which is probably groundbreaking at the time, like, or unprecedented. Yeah. And no, that's that's it exactly. You know, that to show people five minutes of the movie as just a, a hunk and drop it. And the thing is that it, it, it goes out, and people forget this now, that, that when it was released to theaters in, in 93 for the holiday period, Disney put it on the front of Nightmare Before Christmas, and you and I were just talking uh, yeah, pre-game of the show, Three Musketeers. You know, they run this in theaters, and people lose their minds. It's like, oh my god, that movie looks amazing. And <laughs> and you know, go to Don. Is the rest of the movie like this? And and Don, who knows that you know, back in, in you know in Burbank, you know, he's assembling the Titanic. It's like, absolutely, this is a wonderful <laughs> film. Oh my god, you're gonna love this. The Lion King that we know today only came together in the last 10 weeks before it was released. They had a, a test screening, I want to say, in Glendale in the early part of 94, and everybody agreed they were almost there. You know, they, they just said, look, we need like 10 laughs. <laughs> you know, I think we got the drama part of it right, but we need to entertain people. And one of the things that they came up with was the Hawaiian war chant scene. You could be a big pig too. What do you want me to do, dress and drag and do the hula? But here's the thing, they had to buy the rights to the Hawaiian war chant, which was going to be $10,000. Gosh. And Jeffrey Katzenberg was, oh, God, no way. We are over budget. We are behind schedule. I am not giving you idiots any more money. And Don's like, well, wait a minute. What do we, how about we come in and we'll, we'll bring the boards and we'll, we'll show you how we're going to do it. And so it's like, all right, fine. You know, I'm here at 6 o'clock in the morning tomorrow. Be here. And so what Don does is he comes to Jeffrey's office. He brings like 30 people with him. You know, and he's fed everybody coffee and donuts with all the caffeinated and the sugar. And there's all this energy in the room. And, you know, and at the end of it, you know, they, you could be a big pig too. And they all burst to applause and they laugh. And Katzenberg is, just looks at how they've stacked the deck. It's like, all right, you morons can have your $10,000. Right. You know, just get out of my office. And, and you think about how many, how will that help? that scene but you know if you talk with the guys who recorded this movie and Robert Guillaume used to tell this wonderful story because they called him in and he's, like, the, he's the voice of Rafiki right yeah they called him in 30 different time to record scenes because they could never figure out how to get it you know who was this character he was the sage he was the medicine man but a little a little empire strikes back yoda ish oh god yeah and and finally one day you know they call robert in and he's like all right what are we recording now no 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 no. we figured it out you're crazy you know (laughs) it's like oh well okay i can play crazy yeah by yoda and and that's it exactly it's this loose assemblage of parts that at the very last minute suddenly became a Ferrari. Hit the ground running, became the highest grossing animated film in, in Disney history. Though the interesting thing, um, if you talk with people on the Disney marketing side, they'll tell you that the reason that The Lion King did so well in the summer of 1994 was actually because it missed its original opening date in November of 93. Because think about it, Disney up until that point, you know, you got 
Mermaid came out in uh, November of uh, 1989. Oliver and Company came out in November of 1990. Beauty and the Beast came out in November of 1991. Aladdin came out in 1992. You had this this run of, of, of hit films and people really enjoyed Disney animation. And then suddenly, after you know getting people used to that and getting the oh boy the new Disney's coming and it's like well where is it oh it's delayed it won't be here for six months and so anticipation builds yeah the exact opposite of what they did with the uh, solo movie five months after Last Jedi yeah <laughs> I'm so glad you caught that yes that's it exactly it comes out people are dying for a new Disney animated film and it turns out this one is strong and funny one thing I did want to bring up is we've talked about Elton John and mm. Lebo M and but Hans Zimmer score in this movie is fantastic and i honestly feel like it's one of his best even even up to now i don't know if you saw but just today they released the uh the names of the next set of disney legends they're going to be honored at, at d23 and, and hans zimmer is one of them oh wow. uh, and you know that's actually on the back not only of his amazing work for lion king but also you know think about what he did for pirates of the caribbean, pirates of the caribbean yeah. yeah i think lion king was his first academy award and and well deserved because again you know you, you got to remember you know that the, the the thing about Lion King is the music speckles over a lot of flaws you know so <laughs> yeah it's all about it's all about hiding your mistakes and, and there you uh, go there you go and, yeah I mean the score for for this movie mm-hmm. is, is is amazing and it's mm-hmm. it's just like it just sticks in your mind and I, I you know I watched we watched, I watched it the other day and hadn't seen it in a long time and just so much of it came flooding back from from watching it as a kid. So yeah, this so this movie, as you mentioned, Dave went on to win two Oscars. It won Hans Zimmer won for original score, and then Can You Feel the Love Tonight ended up winning the Oscar for best original song. So one thing I wanted to ask Jim, as I know you'll know this if there's an answer to it, I've always been surprised about kind of the lack of Lion King in the parks. I know there's the show at Animal Kingdom, there was a show at Magic Kingdom at some point. I'm sure there's been meet and greets and parades and stuff but has there ever been a lion king ride that's ever been in development um part of the problem again with lion king is you are dealing with for a large part four-legged characters and you know it, it was just one of these things where if you talked with the uh imagineers you know they definitely kicked the tires they were they, you know at one point there were discussions for example of putting show scenes into the Jungle Cruise, mm. uh, you know, that featured Lion King characters. At the same time, I have to tell you that that didn't make it nearly as far as the George of the Jungle Cruise. I can show you the prospectus <laughs> that they put together. They actually got as far as budgeting it and deciding which scenes they change out. And in fact, the, the last scene of the attraction was going to be you floating by George's house with live actors, you know, dressed as George and Ursula and the ape named Ape. You know, somebody <laughs> in a costume waving to people in the jungle book. I, I guess the other thing you have to remember is that fairly early on, this got identified as something they they wanted to bring to Broadway. And then they're, uh, frank, to be frank, you know, Tom Schumacher was like, look, you know, if I'm going to get people to pay, well, then, you know, the get an extraordinary price of like 50 or $60 for a theater ticket, this has got to be an exclusive. This has got to be something you can only see in a theater. So it got frozen out of the parks. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to see an amazing Disney parade, go to YouTube and type in the Lion King Celebration. They did this absolutely stunning parade. It was the very first parade Disney did that had show stops. You know, the parade would get to a certain point in the parade route and stop, and they'd suddenly perform the circle of life. And boy, they had crocodile puppets that rolled down the road. In fact, a lot of the characters that you see in the Lion King celebration show 
at uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom are actually repurposed floats from, you know, yeah, that, that parade. Yeah. But no, that, trust me, go chase that out. It was an amazing yeah. street show. And then I forgot about Rafiki's Planet Watch. That's one more. Yeah, uh, to be honest, a lot of us forget about Rafiki's Planet Watch, okay? You I've, never, to, I've never been to it. <laughs> it's a glorified petting zoo. And, you know, to be honest, it's now gone to a seasonal basis. In a couple of years, you, that's where you're going to go to visit Zootopia. But hey, you didn't hear that from me. Yeah, so. I mean, I've heard rumors. And they're building Zootopia in where? Hong Kong? Uh, Shanghai. Shanghai. One Shanghai. of us. Yep. <laughs> We're not going to dive into our usual review on this movie because you guys have all, everyone seen Lion King and tends to love it. But David, why don't you just give me sort of your, your wrap up? You've watched this movie again. Tell me what you thought about it after probably not seeing it for a while. Yeah, I definitely hadn't seen it for a long time, but it is for sure one of the ones that I've seen the most out of the movies we've gone through so far on this podcast. I mean, I had it as my number one and I it stays as my number one up to this point. It's just such a solid story for all the reasons we, we mentioned this the score you get to know and love the characters and all the characters are great timon and pumbaa i was laughing at simba you really empathize for his dad died and he has to figure out his his way on his own until he meets his dad in the clouds but <laughs> yeah i really really enjoyed it i i grew up watching the timon and pumbaa tv series which is a common theme as we've gone through these movies this came out in 94. I was born in 93. So I was a year old when this movie came out. Um, the TV series is on Toon Disney, Disney Channel from 95 to 99. So I was definitely more familiar with the characters from that show. I think I said the same thing about uh, the Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid and yeah. Aladdin. <laughs> and yeah, there's been so many Toon Disney shows I, I grew up watching. But Timon and Pumbaa were definitely just so, so funny in this movie. And you, you can you can see why they created a show based off of those characters because they really carried the the humor side of this movie. We had the uh, the Sega Game Gear Lion King game as well, like the 8-bit jump on the wildebeest, swing on the monkeys like video game on our little handheld device. Yeah, yeah, I could probably still power it up just if we put new batteries in. It's in my closet in my parents' oh, that's so in cool. my old bedroom in my parents' house. <laughs> so yeah, that that was a fun game. I I remember playing that. Um, very vaguely because i was very small i don't know when the sega game gear came out but it was a very old handheld console yeah quick question i and in rewatching the movie i mean face it when you get to the back hack or the back 15 20 minutes of the film you get a lot of film school stuff you get slow motion fights you get you know simba running across the desert slowly and that sort of thing does that still work for you or does it uh seem the slow-mo fight with between Simba and Scar was a little corny, but it's mm. pretty brief. Okay. So Jim, how about your, I, I don't know if you, how recently you watched Lion King, but I'd love to just sort of your sort of wrap up thoughts on the legacy of this movie and, and what you think of it. I mean, you didn't list it in your top five. So I'm curious your ultimate thoughts about this, this classic. Movie. Oh no, I, it's, it's, it's very enjoyable, but at the same time, if I look at Lion King and again, you have to understand that, that, while this film was in production, I was living in Florida and had friends who were working. Because they Disney. produced some of it at MGM, well, Yeah, right? they did. In fact, that's the thing. You'd go in and hear her friends of ours working on I Just Can't Wait to Be King. And it's that sequence that convinced the folks back in Burbank, okay, you can do your own movie. And that's how we got Mulan and, and Lilo and Stitch and, to a lesser extent, Brother Bear. But... What people don't understand is that they almost didn't get I Just Can't Wait to Be King because they had done for Beauty and the Beast, Kill the Beast. Mm. And tell you what, the next time you watch Beauty and the Beast, uh, the animated version, pay attention to how the villagers look at the beginning of the movie. And then pay attention to how they looked during Kill the Beast, because to be honest, <laughs> they look like two entirely different sets of characters, and and that's a bad thing in an yeah, animated right. movie. I, you know, nobody to this day understands what happens, whether they got the wrong model sheets or however that worked. But when they initially cut the movie together, it's like, what the hell? The villagers don't look the same. Who screwed up here? And they had to go back and do reanimate a, a lot of that scene to sort of bring it back in sync. So. 
you know, initially when it's like, eh, we'd like to help out with Lion King too. No, you screwed up. You you know, kill the beast. We're not going to. But it, <laughs> but in the end, they had no choice. They didn't have enough bodies to complete the movie because, of course, you know, a lot of their vets had gone over to work on Pocahontas. So it's like, okay, fine, you can have this scene. But they deliberately chose that scene because think about it: the art style changes. Changes. Yeah. You know, so it's like, go ahead, screw this up. We don't care. You know, uh, <laughs> it can look different. It's not going to be an issue. But it turned out to be, you know, the one of the breakup moments of the film. And it's like, wow. You guys can do good work. Okay, you can do your own movie. But you could like literally take a tour of of MGM back then, and you just see them working on this. <laughs> oh God, yeah, they called it the fishbowl. You could it's pretty wild. Yeah, you literally walk in and look in through the glass and see people working on their scenes for the Lion King. I don't know. It, it was a very exciting time, and you know, I, I still miss that studio. I, I yeah, I wish in a way that when Disney was moving in to the CG business in California that they'd left Florida alone and left it to make hand-drawn films. And maybe we wouldn't have ended up with films like Princess and the Frog. (laughs) Would you or other journalists or paparazzi like take pictures of those animators working MGM or did they have strict security around that? Well, they had cast members who... You know, no photography, please. No photography, please. And but again, you're, when you're paying somebody eight dollars an hour, you know, it's just sort of like eh, I'll be looking over here for a few minutes. But sadly, I don't. I don't have any pictures from that time. Though um, interesting, I was there. This was just a few weeks after uh, Lion King had opened, and just by luck of the draw, I'm in the fishbowl the day that Jeffrey Katzenberg comes in, and this is after Michael Eisner has forced him out, and he's there to say goodbye to the folks at, uh, you know, Feature Animation Florida. And, you know, I I watched the whole thing as a pantomime through the glass. They presented him with a plaque and, you know, a painting that they'd made and statues, and everyone was very teary because they'd been through the wars together. And, and of course, Jeffrey is looking around the room going, well, who do I want to recruit for DreamWorks animation? You know, (laughs) so, (laughs) again, it was was literally the fishbowl allowed you a window in sometimes to some pretty amazing disney history i may have gone on that extended tour as a very young child but i'm I'm kind of kind of bummed it's gone now yeah well that's you know the world moves on and they got to find room for the star wars attraction so go figure (laughs) so yeah real quick watching this movie again as i've said a couple times just brought back tons of nostalgic memories it's definitely a favorite as a child and you know from hans zimmer's score to the really fun voice cast and and despite james Earl jones apparently being a lazy casting choice it's still pretty fantastic <laughs> no no he, he, he the scenes with young simba and mufasa are, are wonderful though Again, just to sort of frame this, and, and again, to give you some idea of how meatballed together this movie was. Think about it, that, that amazing scene where, you know, after Mufasa has rescued young Simba and, and Nala from the hyenas, and, you know, he sends Nala off, and there's this amazing moment where, you know, Simba, come here, and he goes to walk over, and he accidentally puts his paw inside of, you know, his father's footprint, and he sees, it's so small, I'm never going to be as good as my father wants me to be. I'm never going to be the man that he is or or the lion that he is. And here's the thing about that moment, though. That didn't come from Roger Allers. That didn't come from Rob Minkoff. That came from an intern who was, you know, just working for the story department for a summer. All right. And, you know, and at that point, it's like we are looking for ideas for this movie. If anybody has anything, please. And she, she literally drew this up. And and that, think about it, how much that one image sums up this whole film and gives you a sense of what this story is really about. And that didn't come from anybody who was a professional animator. That came from a college student who walked in the door in June and walked out the door in August to go back to school. Yeah, I mean, and that's just an incredible analogy to just like the production of this film in general. No, that's it exactly. <laughs> and a really great way to wrap this up. So, David, I mean, we typically do a rating, but what's your rating out of out of anything is probably going to be 100%, yeah? <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. All right, we'll do it the normal way. Jim, we ask our guests to create a rating system unique to the movie we're talking about. So it can be anything you want. What should we rate Lion King out of? 
Uh, well, you know, farting a warthog. So <laughs> I give it five gas clouds. So out of out of what? <laughs> yeah. Out of what? Out of out of six. Okay, okay. you know, just because again, if you light a match, it would be very explosive. You know, very bright, very entertaining. So, <laughs> all right. So David, out of six glass glass cloud gas clouds, <laughs> what what do you give Lion King? I give it a five point seven out of six gas clouds all right any any reasons why yeah i mean i i wanted to mention there's a little bit of i think a little bit of jarring leaps in time in the movie like he's a he's a little kid and then he's you know i don't know how much older like the next scene which is a little <laughs> bit jarring just like the pacing of that um but i think they realized this and they realized the opportunity in those you know t- 10 to 15 years however long it is because they created Lion King one and a half, sure. which takes place right in those years. So that's about my only negative critique, I think. And also remember, there's a wonderful scene in the middle of Hakuna Matata, where in what, inside of what, ten bars of music, yeah. you know, and they're walking across the log. You know, Simba ages fifteen years. That's a great. It's you a know, great image, though. That's some ballsy storytelling. You know, yeah, no, we'll get away with this. The audience will buy it. <laughs> Keep moving. Don't look back. You know, right. so. Yeah, and I think out of six, what do we say, gassy clouds? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm like at a 5.9, I think. I mean, it's it's so good. I, I really, really like this movie. So we'll leave it at that. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. This was this was a real pleasure to hear all your stories and all that all that's stuck in the recesses of your mind. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, you know, that that's, you have to understand that movie came out in 94. My daughter was born... Uh, God, that that very same year, and you know, so as a, a dad, saw a lot of that movie. Yeah, and and I want to promote all your shows real quick. I'm going to see if I can rattle them off. You have the, the Disney Dish with Len Testa. You have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, all about animation. You mm-hmm. have uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z, all about mm-hmm. Lucasfilm. You have the Universal Joint with Aaron Adams. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. And you have. Uh, what's the new one? Oh, uh, I, I want that. That that's uh, with uh, Michelle Viadolid, who, by the way, is is Alice's mom. So, yeah, you know, and so figure. those are all accessible by searching uh, Jim Hill Media or or uh, um, iTunes. Likewise, Bandcamp. You know, type in Jim Hill, though something will show up. So. Yeah, there's some great show. If you love Disney history, love uh, current current Disney events, there's there's tons to listen to there. And you write for the uh, unofficial guide with Len Testa, correct? Yes, yes. You know, again, Len has very low standards when it comes to collaborators, <laughs> so which I appreciate. So, Jim, thank you so much, David. As always, thank you for being on the show today. Of course, thank you for having me back. And next week, as we've discussed, we have Pocahontas from 1995. So we'll see you then. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. <laughs>